And I'm thankful for this, this guy who tweeted and said I don't have that fire in my eyes no more. That game right there was for him. That's what I do. I fool people wrong each and every night, and that's for him right there. Hi, this is Tom Izzo at Michigan State, and you're listening to Grizz 901. What up, Grizz Nation, and welcome back to another episode of Grizz 901. This is our first episode of Throwback Thursday, where we dig into a little bit of the archives, where we bring up some of the best interviews that we had just this season. This is our first year, and as we're approaching the dog days of the summer, and as we're approaching the the 100th episode of Grizz 901, we want to go ahead and still give you the content But because we have a lot of new listeners, because this podcast blew up in its first season, and a lot of that happened in 2022. So this is all the way back from November 22nd. It's with Eric Hasseltine, which is the voice of the Grizzlies, especially for the radio. He's one of my favorites, and you'll hear me gush throughout the entire time. But this is one of the podcasts that you're going to look back on and think, when was this, right? So, let me give it to you. The Grizzlies were 8-8 eight and eight way back in November the 22nd. And they had just got beaten by the Timberwolves at Minnesota, 138-95. to 95. So, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Eric will, honestly, you know, mention it a couple times. Uh, but mainly, this is a chance to get to hear a very long episode of Eric We probably went on a little too long, and it was early on, so I didn't know how to exactly end it, right? I didn't know how to get out of the podcast. He was telling so many good stories that I didn't want to stop him, but it was one that I look back on and I'm very fond of, so I hope you will too. You're going to hear a lot about him being a radio play-by-play guy. We often... We'll talk about Hank McDowell, who was our very first episode. It was a two-part series. Well, Hank McDowell and Eric were on the radio for many, many years together, so you'll hear a little bit about how fond they were of each other. They they loved each other so much, and then when Hank had to step away, uh, that was a very, very big time, especially in their, their own individual lives, and so you'll hear a lot about that. You'll hear all nicknames, some, some ghost stories that he might mention, so... We get into a lot. It's not just all Grizzly stuff. It's a lot of fun. You hear a lot about Eric himself. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Enjoy. All right. Today's interview we have with us, one of my favorite radio broadcaster. He is an Epcot aficionado. He is a back of the plane OG. And on our debut episode, part two, he was given the compliment of when you close your eyes, you can see exactly what he's talking about. He is Eric Hasseltine. What's up, Eric? Hey, how you doing, man? Good to see you. You too, man. You too. Thank you for joining us. So um, I was uh, talking to a close friend of yours, and I'll let you kind of guess and who you think it might be later on if (laughs) if you want. Uh, But he gave me a few questions to ask you. And so I wanted to kind of hit those to you real quick before we get into a little Grizzlies talk. And this will give the people, the fans, a little bit more about Eric. We hear you all the time, and we can okay. we always see you. Yes. Let's dig in a little bit to Eric. So I was told that you have a nickname of Biscuit. 
What is yes. the reason of biscuit? Oh my. Uh, it actually stems back. Um, I've been friends with Rob Fisher since he arrived in Memphis because we both worked at, uh, the initial flagship station for the, for the Grizzlies, uh, when he came in and we've known each other and, and we'd always talked about, you know, one day it'd be fun to work together on the Grizzlies. Cause I have a lot of respect for Rob's work and his talents. And, um, we had an opportunity once to, to try to hire him and it, it couldn't go through. And then we finally kind of got to the point where we could again. And so we hired him and we were friends, but we didn't really spend a lot of time together. Uh, in, in the early years, I was still married at the time and, and Rob was living downtown. I was living way out East and everybody knows the logistics of something like that. So, um, so I just said to him when in passing one day, I said, you know, Hey man, we, we hang out on the road all the time. Let's hang out in like, let's watch football this weekend or something. He's like, cool. Yeah. I agree with that. Cause we would get off the, off the planes and race to a watering hole of our choice. And at that time I had then become single and Rob was, so we'd go, grab a nightcap and then head to our respective places. And I was living downtown. And so he called me at one of the divisional playoff Sundays and he says, Hey man, we're, uh, we're getting a bunch of KFC and we're going to watch football at the house. Why don't you come over? We got a new pool table. I said, perfect. I had nothing else going. I said, all right, I'll be there in a couple hours. I got something I got to take care of. I get there and Rob says to me, Hey, help yourself to anything you want. It's cool. Uh, you know, I said, great. So we start watching football and I was looking around and I'm like, on it there's no biscuits left and then I looked in the refrigerator and there was a box and there was one I said perfect so I heated it up and dipped it in gravy because I I'm a carb addict I think I love bread so the night goes on and you know we're typical Sunday night off with a bunch of guys hanging out watching football we had a bunch of beers and I took off and you know was you know wasn't drinking too much because I was driving back home and I said hey man I really appreciate it I enjoyed it um thanks for having me over the next day. And he says, uh, yeah, you can't come back over. I'd seen him the, the next day he was coming in for his meeting. He goes, you're not allowed back at the house. That's what are you talking about. He says, you ate, uh, you ate chef's last biscuit. His roommate was a guy named Mark Mabry. He was the executive chef at FedEx forum. And I said, what are you talking about? You told me I could eat anything else. He says, yeah, but you ate the last biscuit. So I guess Mark had saved the biscuit. I didn't realize that they figured out through deductive reasoning who ate it, which was me. And I admitted to it. So I looked at Rob and I said, so if I brought him a box of biscuits, do I get a free pass back? And he goes, you know, he's having a pretty bad day. That might work. So on my way in to the arena that day for the game, I left a little early and hit a KFC and bought a six pack of biscuits. Went through the drive-thru. Lady said, can I help you? I said, yeah, six pack of biscuits. And she said, that's it. I said, yeah, that's it. No drink, no nothing. So anybody that's had a KFC biscuit knows what they smell like out of the oven. So I had to eat one in the car just on principle. And so when I brought it to Mark in his office in the, uh, in the arena, I, I did the Forrest Gump with the box of chocolates, only I used the box of biscuits. And I said, I brought you biscuits, but I got hungry, so I ate one. And so that's where it came from. And, wow. you know, it's, it's a bunch of guys that all worked for the team that we had a lot of fun with it. And so over the year, it just became biscuit, and it's just stuck. That's awesome. That's, uh, yeah, no, that's, yeah, I was wondering, because I saw that, and I was like, all right, I don't know how you're going to do this, or what, right. what, what the story is, so uh, good luck, so, all right, so. Well, two- it was, it, it, it's Rob's fault, and Rob embellishes the fact that uh, he, you know, I ate the last biscuit, but he forgets to leave out the fact of the story that he said, eat whatever you want, right. so I was eating whatever I want. The problem was, Mark had saved it, 
And when you see a chef go to work, and I think this was the part I left out. It should have been fun. Mark let everybody leave. And he was like, there's one biscuit left. And he was super excited. You know, did the <laughs> hand clap, rubbing it together, pulling chicken off the bone, seasoning it up, putting it in the oven, getting ready for this incredible biscuit sandwich he's going to make. And he opens the box and just screams, where's the biscuit? So that's kind of where <laughs> that's kind of where the other humor comes in, because they were all just like, we don't know. And he was like ready to kick all of his roommates out. Only it had been me that ate it and left. That's awesome. Uh, well, all right. Well, you're talking about uh, going to your local watering hole. So this is a, um, a question that happened back in Indianapolis, what I was told. Uh, there was a drinking game with some local youngsters that challenged you. Uh, I heard that you demolished them. Can you tell us the story? Yeah, it actually, I, I know who's asking you these, <laughs> but it was in Oklahoma City. Um, okay. And uh, I might have pulled this trick in indianapolis but the the original one started in, in oklahoma city this is not something i'm incredibly proud of but uh i uh am a very good consumer of an irish car bomb so mm. um i i do it very quickly uh it's it's amazing to a lot of people it's kind of become a party trick um i try not to do too many of them because they're they're not the best thing in the world for you just chugging a bunch of guinness but um we were in Oklahoma city and I walked up to the bar and I said, well, I'll take an Irish car bomb. And I took it and I took it pretty fast. And this young guy next to me goes, well, that was pretty fast. And I said, yeah, you know, it, it is what it is. I said, I, I like them. They taste like chocolate milk. He says, well, I think I can beat you. And I said, I don't think that's a wise decision on your part. <laughs> and he says, he says, all right. And I said, well, what, let's, let's bet the round. If you beat me, I'll buy your round. If I beat you, you buy the round. And he says, okay, well, seven rounds later, and he hadn't won one, and his tab was over 100 bucks. His girlfriend, I looked at him, and I said, you want to go again? And his girlfriend says, no, he's going home. And so <laughs> we're all just laughing. And we've done it again a couple of times in L.A. I think maybe we did it in Indianapolis. But inevitably, someone sees that, and they go, oh, I can do it. And I, I'm right. just like, I, you know, I don't know how to explain this to you, and not that this uh, this person was – incredibly quick but I, I i tell a story of a friend of mine and i were at silky o'sullivan's and i drank two before she drank one wow so okay. it, and like the bartender went i've never seen that i said well she's not like she's not like a normal consumer of this but um i can count on one hand the number of times someone's beaten me and it's not by very much and it's one guy in particular that we usually tie but it's it, it's kind of uh now become a running party trick. Although now at 49 years of age, I try to lay off the Irish car bombs unless we definitely have a day off the next day. Yeah, no. Yeah. The, I've had, uh, I've had those before and I am terrible at chugging just completely, no matter what it is. And so I would be the guy who will not challenge you hundred percent. There you go. Uh, all right. So the last one, I do not know if the city is correct because you just said Oklahoma city for that one. So the, uh, I don't know, me writing it down might have messed everything up. This is supposedly back in Oklahoma City as well. Uh, you had a ghost in your room? <laughs> no, but the, the hotel is supposedly haunted. Um, there is a longstanding story. If you look up haunted hotels in Oklahoma City, uh -huh. uh, and it's a, we don't stay there anymore, but it's called the Skirvin Hotel. Okay. And so... You know, we were looking up the hotel when we were first staying at it because the first few years when the Sonics moved to Oklahoma City, we did not stay at that hotel. And 
we stayed a few blocks down. But so we look up this hotel and it's, it's a beautiful old hotel. Well, it's got a little bit of a dark history. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. the owner of the hotel basically kept the 10th floor um, unrented. And it was all of his buddies that were there with their mistresses and their poker games and just a bunch of shenanigans. And uh, apparently the, the, it's called the Skirvin Hotel. So we just called him Old Man Skirvin. Old Man Skirvin uh, had a girlfriend that was a hotel employee uh, named Effie. And Effie uh, ended up pregnant. And so Effie uh, was sent to the 10th floor to stay out of sight because that would have been a scandal that could have ended the hotel. So he kind of kept her hidden on the 10th floor. Well, she really wasn't allowed out. So unfortunately, Effie uh, went crazy and and, uh, committed suicide out the window with their baby. And so the, 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 the hotel horror stories are that Effie now haunts the hotel and generally only haunts rooms that are occupied by men. And it's usually around the ninth or 10th floor. Well, one year we got on the ninth floor. And so everybody likes to play pranks and knock on your door and do things. And um, <laughs> there's been a couple other haunted hotels. And yeah, so uh, the, the whole fact of the matter was there have been people that have sworn up and down that they've felt her presence in that hotel around the NBA. I have not. Um, but the guys that are giving you these questions think they're funny. And not only the hotel in Oklahoma city, there was also a haunted hotel in Milwaukee. And so I walked out of my room in Milwaukee once, and these guys read up old lores about how to ward off ghosts. And I guess you put baking powder on your doorstep, their flower or something. So if they step in the flower, you can see. So I walk out and the maid's right outside my room and there's a, just a pile of flour or whatever they bought. She's like, what did you guys do last I'm like, I have, do not blame me. I did not do this. So they would knock on the door and things like that. Now, apparently one person in our travel party or a couple of people in our travel party uh, did hear some of the things that are supposedly happening. And I'm not one to doubt it. I mean, I watched too many of those ghost hunter stories to think that these things yeah. aren't possible and that these guys are all making this up with this audio equipment. So there's been some times where, where uh, you just feel a little chill or a little weird in that hotel. So we don't thankfully stay there anymore, uh, even though the people that worked there were nice. But it is funny. I terrified Maurice Spates uh, when he was with us out of Florida um, (laughs) because we got in the elevator together, and Mo was actually on the 10th floor. And I said – I hit the, he hits 10. I go, Oh man, you're on the 10th floor. And he said, uh, he says, yeah. And I said, well, you've heard the story about the 10th floor. He says, no. And I said, Mo, oh. oh, the 10th floor is like where supposedly this, this ghost roams. And Mo, Mo said, well, I ain't getting off on the 10th floor. And I think he went and changed his room. Uh, but I was, I was told, please don't tell the players about ghost stories anymore at that point. That's awesome. Yeah. No, there's no way I would go sleep on the 10th floor. So no, I, I'd probably ward that one off too, but I, you know, the rumor is it's not just to the 10th floor. And uh, if you read it up on it, there's like stories again on it. You'll, if you look it up, anybody who wants to Google it, just Google haunted hotel, Oklahoma city, and it'll just all pop up. And there's been customers that say they were just single guys in a room there for business and they're in the shower and they feel like a scratch in the shower on their back and there's nothing there or, they look out and their mirror magically has like 
a one spot where the steam did not steam up. So I don't know why that would happen scientifically. I don't know if these guys maybe spent too many times in a, in a, in a bar around the corner or at the steakhouse, <laughs> but you know, again, there's a lot of documentation of these things. And these are just things that sometimes when you're traveling, you just pass time on the road with. That's awesome. All right. So who gave me those questions for you? Hank McDowell. Absolutely. Yeah. Hank's yeah, a, uh, he's a friend. So uh, we asked the question about you and I, and I, I'm a big fan of yours. And so you. I just uh, want to bring you on here, but uh, because I asked Hank about you, let's uh, let's turn the tables a little bit. So what, you know, obviously Hank had um, his medical issue and why he had to right. kind of step away, but what made Hank so special? Because I loved hearing you two just kind of go back and forth. And it seemed like, and this is probably, you know, a compliment itself, but it just seemed like friends just sitting there talking yeah. about a game, but just on a higher level. So what's so special about Hank? Well, I mean, first of all, he's probably the most genuine, good hearted human being I've ever met. I mean, right. he's just everything you want to be around. He's an incredible father, incredible husband, um, very intelligent, um, but down to earth, you know, just will sit and have a beer with you and talk. Uh, if you ever needed to ask him advice and, and, you know, he's not like old as my parents would be, but he's a little older than I am. And so I could ask him things. And I, I just had a tremendous amount of respect for his basketball knowledge. I had heard him on some tiger broadcasts and I was like, this guy's pretty good. Um, and we got to a point where we were making a change and they said, well, what do you think about Hank McDowell? And I said, I think, he's, I think he's great. He's, you know, a local guy. I've met him. He's very nice. And, you know, on those road trips, you start to figure out who people really are. And we were lucky because, you know, Rob was traveling with, with us and Rob and I were friends and, um, you know, Hank joined in the party, you know, after Hank and I were traveling and Rob joined in, I should say, because we had a a different sideline reporter. Um, and you know, it, it just, uh, there was just a camaraderie from the word go. We went and got lunch on the first couple of trips. We got to know each other. Um, I went and watched his son's basketball games when he was coaching them, you know, now who are grown, I would right. have seen both of his kids play and um, went to their games. He was coaching his son, Jake at one point. Uh, and then Jake went to high school and I went to his senior night. So um, he's just, there's just this, kindness to him that that you don't see every day and so you know here I am I'm the goofball cut it up young guy try to make people laugh with sarcasm and and sometimes negativity and Hank just would give it right back some of the funniest times we had were we would pre-tape certain segments so we weren't speaking them through the national anthem and inevitably I would just try to throw them off and I would you know you can't say certain words on the air and I would just, in the middle of saying it, I would say something just outlandish, like you would hear in a bar, just to see his right. reaction. And he would just pick it up and go. And I'm like, boy, I wish we could use that. Boy, yeah. I wish we could do satellite radio because it was funny. And he would just laugh and just things like that. But, you know, I, to me, it's a guy who, again, he made it to the highest level of this game. Yeah. And I did hear your interview with him and I laughed. He's like, he can't play and he thinks he can play. And I'm like, I never, ever thought I could play at that level, but we would go shoot baskets sometimes. And you realize for him to make it to the NBA and stick around the NBA for as many years as he did, um, he was a, he was an amazing player. And you talk to a lot of guys around the league that 
know him from his playing days. That's what I always marveled at. Every arena we went into, somebody knew him and everybody liked him. He's one of those guys where people say, I've never heard a negative word about this person. And I've never heard anybody say anything negative about Hank. And that day that he called me and told me he was going to step away because we had known about the health issue, the health. I found out about the health issue. And for those that don't remember, um, Hank entered the hospital in the summertime and they found a brain bleed. And thankfully they found it when they did, or Hank wouldn't be with us. And for me, that would have, I would have been absolutely devastated because once Rob Fisher did join the crew, it was the three of us everywhere we went were dinner, lunch, and, you know, some cities, everybody has friends or family and they don't know, but you want to talk 80, 85% of the time yeah. we were all together Add in Jason Wallace, our PR director, when he was traveling at that time too, when he joined us and it was the four of us. And, and that was a, a family that we called it our, our basketball family. Yeah. And so um, it was a special relationship. And so when he was sick, those were the people that showed up. I was actually in a golf tournament with Jason. Rob was somewhere else. His son, Patrick called me, told me what happened. I said, Hey, we all need to go take care. We need to go. And they yeah. said, just come at the, come when you're done because you can't see anybody till after three o'clock. So we were all there and there weren't many people he wanted to see. And that was us. And that meant a lot. And so, you know, I started talking to the higher ups and I said, Hey, I think he, he has what carte blanche. And my, as my, as far as my yeah. opinion goes, in my opinion, doesn't mean anything. He can do what he wants. If he wants to take a year off and come back, that's fine. We need to tell somebody this may be a one-year-only position. But he has earned the right to do as as he pleases. And so we talked, and I said, hey, just get yourself right. This is There's more important things than this. Whatever you need, we're here. Whatever Carol needs, we're here. You know, we love you. We know you have the family support system, but we're with you. And we got down to the preseason, and I remember we were in uh, San Antonio and ironically playing golf again and with a, a good friend of mine who's like my brother out there. And I'm on the 17th fairway, almost done. And I had a great drive and I got a nice shot in for, for you know, to hit the green and regulation, go for a birdie. My phone rings in a tank and I was like kidding around. I go, well, this better be effing important because I'm about to hit a, <laughs> a wedge in to try to get a birdie here and get my score back to, to respectability. He goes, uh, and he got real serious and he said, hey, it is important. I said, okay. I said, hang on. And I told my brother, I said, Hey, I'm going to walk back to the clubhouse. Just bring the, bring the cart. And then I just started walking through the, you know, up the, up the 18th fairway to the clubhouse. And I said, what's up? And he said, Hey, I, uh, I think I'm done. And wow. I said, I said, Whoa, I said, okay, not what I was expecting to hear. Um, and I said, are you okay with the decision? Are you, is, are you going to look back in two months and say, I wish I wouldn't have said that because if you're asking me, you don't have to tell me this now you can take more time. And right. he just said, I'm, I'm pretty positive and I've thought about it and I want to sit down with you and Scott and have lunch next week and let's talk about it. But I wanted you to know first and, you know, you're my brother. I love you. And I I just want you, you know, I, I want to talk to you first before I tell anybody else other than obviously Carol and his wife and and his sons and the people and his family. And I said, well, listen, man, I said, like I said, if you want to take a year off, that's fine. If you make this decision in a year and want to come back, I'm okay with that too. And he just said, I just, I don't feel like I can do it at the level I need to do it at. Yeah. And that's who he was. 
if he did something, he did it right. You know, he'd always joke. Right. He was like, well, you do all this prep and I don't do anything. And then this dude would come out with a notebook with like three pages of stuff. And I'd be like, what are you talking about, about not prepping? Yeah. He would talk about days in the game. I'd be like, well, I'm going to go finish prep work and go to the gym. He's like, yeah, I think I'm just going to go sit by the pool. And then he'd show <laughs> up and I don't know when he did it, but he would always be ready to go. And I loved my time with him. Uh, that was probably the hardest thing uh, I've had to do uh, professionally other than when Don Poyer passed away was to sit down with him and, and do that grind city media interview that we ran uh, where he basically got to say goodbye to the fans. And we, we reminisced about all the things we had gone through. And, you know, the only reason Don was tougher because it was so sudden mm -hmm. and it was the, I mean, it was death and, and that's, you know, Hank is still thankfully with us. We still talk. Um, we still joke, as you can tell on your podcast, when he talks about, he knows I'm listening. So he throws little right. jabs in and I laugh and I chuckle, but you know, it's still, we miss them tremendously. It doesn't mean that we don't love the the guys that are with us now on the, right. on the radio side, but Hank was special and we were very, very lucky to have him. Um, our fans were lucky to listen to him to, to be honest with you. And you know, this wouldn't be a sentiment of national people, but my opinion is basketball in general in Memphis and in the NBA was lucky because there was a lot of people that he touched both playing and on the radio that, that a lot of people will never know about. I get to hear it because I get to run into his former colleagues. Like last night in Minnesota, I ran into Jim Peterson. They played together in 1986 with the Rockets, the team that went to the finals and they were like buddies. They were the guys that hung out together all the time. And every time I see Jim, who I remember also playing for the Warriors and he and I've had those conversations and I just call him Jimmy Pete. Jimmy Pete's always, where's Hank? How's Hank doing? What's, why is the big fella not traveling? He's in good shape. Why is he being so soft? He wasn't soft like this in, in Houston. I said, Jimmy, he's, he's done, man. When you know yeah. you're done, you're done. He goes, yeah, I get that. I get that. So he's got a lot of, he's got a lot of friends still out yeah. there that care a lot about him. And it's, it's because of the man he is and, and really is, you know, as a father, that's someone I will point to as my son becomes a teenager and a young man said, Hey, this is a guy look, lead by, look by his example, follow yeah. his examples and, and you'll be okay. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Hank is, he's one of the good ones. And, and I said yeah. that kind of on the podcast because, you know, I, I know the family personally, but just, just knowing who he is and then just kind of the other people that really don't know him and view him the same way. It, it's really cool uh, because he is, he just is, he's one of the good ones. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that because, um, you know, I know y'all's relationship was special. And so I kind of had to hit that real quick, but, but yeah. let's get into some, uh, some Grizz questions and, uh, we'll let you okay. get out of here. I have, uh, four and they're just, you know, pretty simple, but I want to get into more of, you know, Taylor Jenkins, the staff, because I don't mm -hmm. think Taylor and their, and their staff really get the credit that they deserve because, you know, everybody is, you know, the keyboard warrior on Twitter that wants to <laughs> get rid of them and they don't understand. Yeah. They don't understand sports, but professional sports really, because, you know, you never get too high, never get too low. And this team is special, but, but my question is, is where do they draw their leadership from? Because it's a young team. It's a young coach. So where does it come from? You know, I feel like it's a collective effort to be okay. honest with you. And I, I see this team, and I get to go to shoot around when I, if I choose to, um, but the two shoot arounds I've gone to, they haven't played real well. So I might not go again. <laughs> uh, hey, we're all, we're all a little bit superstitious here. There True. don't so, go. Uh, yeah. It's uh, 
it really is a collective effort. They're, they're very tight. Um, you know, you talk about guys that play the same position. Tyus and Ja are, are very good friends. Like in, in Minnesota, Ja's joking like, anything you want to know about Minneapolis, the kingpin is Tyus. Tyus, this is Tyus's world. So, you know, don't ask me where to go. Ask Tyus. And they're all, they're all tight. And they, you see them in the hotel. So when you, they have practices, you don't see one guy just step out. Now, Ja's obviously emerging as the leader because he's the best player. Yeah. And so when you're the best, you know, you're, you're kind of relied upon to not only lead by example, but also um, to essentially, you know, kind of pick guys up when they're down. And, you know, I, I watch this group and it, it amazes me how many of them also sound like Taylor Jenkins. So mm. the leadership comes from all the way around And Taylor's very good, in my opinion, at when he has coaches doing the scouts, which is what their job is. And Taylor knows the scout, but he allows them to put it into their words. Like he's not going to step over them and take away their credibility with the players. So look, there, there are scouts that you do. And as a head coach, just like as a starting pitcher in baseball, and you may look at everything, see it the way you want it. And then the other team comes out and throws a complete wrinkle in it. And what you've practiced and prepared for isn't what you're going to see. You know, you can come up thinking you're going to face six out of seven, you know, left-handed hitters in a lineup and the manager on the other side, the next day throws in two more right-handed hitters and, and you're missing your zone. And all of a sudden you were ready to go, but you got shelled. And right. so those things happen. Um, but I think that's where the good, the good part of the coaching staff comes from is that they believe in one another, the players, there's some new faces, but overall they are, they've all been together. So I think it's collective. We do see jaw leading by example, but they do yeah. think, I, I do think Dylan is a guy that, that really leads as well. And Kyle's a guy because of his pedigree in, in times in San Antonio has had a strong voice in that locker room at times too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good answer because, you know, I had down here, you know, is it, is it Taylor? Is it jaw? Is it the vets? And as you said, it's pretty much a collective, which is, yeah. which is great. And, and that's what I've always, you know, wanted as a fan, you know, it's always cool to root for your teams and have a good time, but it's always so much better when you have a good group of guys that you yeah. just like, and they're good dudes. Right. So, yeah, it's, it makes it a lot easier. You know, yeah. I, I speak for myself, but I heard it happen to other people and, I got to go on the two preseason trips this year. You know, obviously none of us traveled last year right. and, you know, obviously the bubble, we didn't travel and it was weird being, we were up in suite two sixteen, and we kind of made a radio thing about that. The TV guys were down at the top of one Oh four, where we actually broadcast from now. And jokingly, I would always scream from suite two sixteen, which is, down the sideline behind the visitor bench, but a sing up, it just like yell down to Rob, Hey, the shoes look good from up here. And Rob <laughs> would look back and be like, looking good biscuit, you know, just things like that. But we didn't even have contact with them. So uh, when, when I got on the plane for the first trip to Charlotte, you know, when Brandon Clark and DeAnthony Melton and even Desmond Bain, who I hadn't met face to face, and Xavier Tillman, when I explained to him who I was, because I had talked to him after multiple games, like, oh, man, it's so great to have you. When coaches come up and say, it's great to have you back on the trips. When the coaches that joined the staff last year that we didn't know said, it's really nice to meet you, heard a lot about you. You know, Coach Jones and Coach Jenkins speak so highly of you guys and the work you do and how lucky we are to have a group like you guys. You know, you feel like you're part of it. And it could be really easy for those players to look at us and go, yo, 
it's just the media guys and they don't treat us right. like that. Right. And to me, that's the, that's the thing that says everything. I'm not trying to turn it on myself about them being good guys, but that's how they treat everybody. They treat right. each other that way. We treat it as a family and, you know, that goes a long way. It goes a long way with the people that cover the team. It goes a long way with the support staff that train these guys, that get them ready for the game, that give them their workout programs, that get them their nutrition programs, that stretch them out before a game, that, that talk to them about certain things with the assistant coaches who give them the game plan, and with the head coach, who, let's be honest, a lot of guys probably didn't know that much about Taylor Jenkins before he got hired. But he is – ingratiated himself into their mind as one of them and someone who's on their side. And, you know, there's, there's nights just like any other situation where Taylor Jenkins has to get a little, uh, get a little, you know, fired up, get under right. their skin a little bit. So um, it's, it's a fun group to be around and yeah. the guys are great in terms of how they are just, now, look, they're, they're still NBA players. I always get the question, and we, Rob and I laugh at it now that we're both 49 years old and, you know, <laughs> our days of staying out super late are probably a little a little behind us. We try to every now and then, but right. people will always ask you, so do you guys hang out with the players? And we're like, 23-year-old um, multimillionaire <laughs> superior athlete that's from a, a different part of the country doesn't have a lot in common with 49-year-old dude that wants to go to bed at midnight and watch, right. you know, like, Dateline on NBC at the hotel room with a, a late night beer and go to sleep. So that, that's a little different window that we're firing for. So uh, we've had our time with some of the other guys that were here before. And that's been one of the things that's always been great about our organization. We haven't had a lot of guys that you just go, boy, I just don't, I wouldn't even want this guy yeah. around my family, let alone around our team, uh, let alone around just individuals. We we've always had good people in our organization. I give a lot of credit to Zach Kleiman and, Rich yeah. Cho, Glenn Grunwald, Tayshawn Prince for putting this roster together um, the way they have, being willing to take chances, but getting players who are also high character guys, because there are there are a handful that are not. And, and you don't want those infiltrating your locker room, if at all possible. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And that's what makes it so special. And that's what, you know, honestly, it just it just comes off as Memphis. Right. That's they just seem yeah. like Memphis dudes. Um Let's go to Taylor Jenkins, and I have just a couple more questions on him. Um, I saw a subtle change, and we were not able to see that because Anthony Melton and Dylan as well, but mainly Melton was out of that last game in Minnesota. But during mm -hmm. the second half of the Clippers game, Taylor made a very small change, and I'm not sure if you saw it or not, but uh, he changed where he was running Kyle and Melton together as the first two off the bench. Well, he changed that to Kyle and Zaire. And so then yeah. what that happened is later in that, you know, the second quarter or, you know, the third quarter, depending on when it is, um, he would go with uh, Melton and Tyus together as like a duo. Um, yeah. Did you notice it? But also, you know, what small adjustments do you think that actually helps the offense and defense on the team? Yeah, I, I did notice it. But I, it's, you got to to me, I go back to the year of the bubble. And when DeAnthony Melton, to me, Granted, he played really well in the starting role in, in terms for Dylan. Had good games. Had some games where he didn't shoot it particularly well, and that that happens right. in an eighty-two game season. So I'm not going to get all, all upset about that. But when DeAnthony burst onto the scene, a lot of people, myself included, really believe that one of the biggest reasons was his relationship with Tyus. Mm. And when Tyus Jones went down prior to the bubble with the injury and did not play, we didn't see the same DeAnthony Melton. He really relies upon Tyus to be the guy that sets him up. Now it's not that DeAnthony can't be a facilitator. Right. 
It's not that he's not a good enough player to have the ball in his hands, but this is what Tyus Jones does. And this is where DeAnthony Melton's game complements his the best. So, you know, with Jai, he's not as much of a, you know, Jai's now a scoring facilitator and he will facilitate, believe me, he'll make the extra pass. We all see it, but Jai's going to get scores too. So I think what Taylor saw was here's my opportunity to get DeAnthony back into a good groove, um, you know, and, and, and feed off of the energy that Tyus Jones brings. And, you know, they, they are, you know, when you mentioned Zaire, I think they're part of it is their trial by fire with the young man. He's 19 years old. You know, the dude was playing with LeBron's son, one year, a couple, you know, a year and a half wow. ago, and now he's guarding LeBron and going like, what in the world? Like his LeBron's son's at the game. So this is, you know, it, it, it's the way it's the world we live in. So um, you don't get better by unless you play. And I know some fans get frustrated with that because there are nights, like in particular last night, where he makes mistakes. He makes rookie mistakes with defensive assignments and, and is finding that consistency with his shot. But in the end, some of these things will pay, in my opinion, some dividends down the road. Now, the problem, as you mentioned, is there are a lot of people that, that want instantaneous results. You want instantaneous success and long-term success, and they don't always coincide. And I get it. That's part of being a fan. And that's, I tell you this much, Dan, if, if I would rather have that than where at one point it seemed like we could be heading uh, before the core four, where there was a lot of apathy before, you know, Mark, Mike, Zebo and Tony arrived and people just didn't care. And I'd rather have guys care and be negative than, than guys not care. So um, it shows people care about this team, but I like the subtle change. I think Kyle, you know, the, the addition of Kyle into the, to the second unit, it's interesting to me because he had his best season as a player, as a starter. And now you're asking him to go back to a secondary role. So we'll see how that affects him as well. But you know, you also have to build for the future and Kyle's contract, let's be honest, is coming up down the road. I think he'd like to stay. I think they'd like to have him, but it's a business too. And you never know what happens in those situations. So you got to prepare yourself for all possible endings there. Yeah. I like that. And on the, the contract part, because it is important to always look to the future. Uh, but also, you know, putting Zaire next to a guy like Kyle, one, they're both long. They both can be mm-hmm. corner pocket, you know, three point shooters which mm-hmm. only creates spacing. And so I like that adjustment because then, like you said, the relationship between Melton and Tyus is so mm-hmm. much better in that second unit, give a little more ump to that time and give you know yeah. each o- them each other, really. And that's what, what's important. Uh, last two questions. Um, what growth have you seen out of Taylor in the past three seasons? I think he's got a little bit more control of the game. I think he, I think in the first year, year and a half, he was a little more subdued when it came to arguing, pressing things. And now he's, he's got confidence that, you know, I mean, he had the confidence before, but now he, he's, he's got an understanding of he doesn't have to do things every, every night the exact same way. You want continuity as a coach. You know, Hubie Brown, we were blessed to have Hubie Brown and Hubie, uh, his, his, blessing of understanding that a 10-man rotation could really help you was also his curse because guys want to play more minutes but the one thing you could never say about Hubie and the one thing I always said is because my guys know what they're going to play they may not like that they're not playing more minutes but they know what they're going to play and pretty much when they're going to play it now if they go in and get in foul trouble that changes it if they go in and are just not doing what we ask them to do then that changes it but Ty, you know for Taylor Taylor will give these guys the, the opportunity to play through some mistakes play through some errors and, and learn from the mistakes rather than be that hard nosed, get out of the game guy 
you're not doing what I asked you to do. Go sit down and think about it, guy. You know, he's got an understanding of what he has. And I think in a way he's had a really difficult situation because this is why the, some of the trades were made. You had too many players that could play. And as a young coach, you're trying to please everybody or you want guys to to develop and you only develop if you're playing. And if you got 13 guys that can play, you got a problem because, you know, three guys are really not going to see significant minutes and then they're not getting any better. And so um, I think he's handled that really well. I think just in our conversations, um, the, the things he notices now as compared to before, He's much more at ease with where he is and, and comfortable in his rotation. I love our staff. Yeah. The fact that we kept it all together um, over the years has been phenomenal. Uh, you know, it would have stayed the same, but, you know, one of our favorite assistant coaches, Neil Ivey, got an opportunity yeah. to, to be the head coach at her alma mater at Notre Dame, which also puts her closer to her son, who's an outstanding player at Purdue and probably mm-hmm. going to be in the NBA. I mean, he's got – he's got some job Morant like characteristics to his game. I love watching him. And she was just a, she worked with Josh. So obviously job probably got to know her son a little bit and losing her was, was, you know, at the time a blow, but then they go out and they find a guy like Blake Ahern. They get a guy like Darko Ryakovich. They get more guys to come in and fill those gaps and, and they keep them around. Scooney Penn, David McClure, mm. David McClure is a brilliant basketball mind. Brilliant. And still, I remember seeing him the first day at training camp at Taylor's training camp. He's running with the players and this dude's an assistant coach and he's just dunking. Like it's nothing. I'm like, who is this dude? Like, where did he come from? I look him up. Oh, well he played at Duke and he played overseas and, you know, just wasn't quite over the NBA line, but you just talk to them and they understand and hearing them describe game plans and where the assignments are. It's, you know, it's, it's fun. Now, we can say a lot of things and the naysayers out there and like, dude, you guys have gotten beat by double digits, seven out of your eight losses. Where's the, you know, understanding of what's going on there. And I'm like, I say this, what you see a lot of teams doing because the Grizzlies are well-respected right now. There's a lot of different game plans we've seen than what is expected. And that's as a coach, sometimes you can't prepare for that. What Minnesota did last night was not what they did in the previous game. It was not anything they had ever done before. They basically, condense the space inside the arc to make it very difficult for Ja to get to the rim. And yeah. that's not something we had seen. Now we'll see more of that. And now the next time you'll be ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. You might actually see that Monday when they take. Yeah. On unfortunately. Yep. Uh, all right. Last question. This is a good one. Uh, this can be very open-ended. So uh, yeah. you don't, you don't have to talk an hour on it because I know you could give an hour long answer, I, but yes, I could. But what does, what did uh, I will, will say, what did the core four, mean for the city of memphis wow that yeah. is a great question um it made this franchise it legitimized the franchise um you still hear people sometimes knock memphis for being a small market and i always laughed when people would go what have you guys done making the playoffs seven years in a row isn't that big a deal and i went go look how many other teams have done it right, right. now there had only been three or four San Antonio. And I think Atlanta during the run had made it. And then it was us. And so I'm like, Hey, you know, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, it was a special time that really gave Memphis an identity and still has that identity. And it's, it's funny. They're not the same grit and grind. You know, we're going to 
beat you down. You're going to know you're in a fight team because now we play with a much faster pace and you have a superstar that you, the likes of you haven't had before. But when you talk to the guys that played against that group when they were in their heyday, you know, Draymond Green said it best the year the Warriors won their first title. So the toughest series we played was not the finals was not the Western conference finals. It was the Grizzlies. Yeah. And because of injury, they were not at full strength. Now, do we still think we would have won that series? Yeah. But not having a healthy Tony Allen and not having a healthy Mike Conley gave us a distinct advantage. And yet we still got out of that series in six games and looked around and said, boy, we're thankful. We don't have another team like that left in this, in this tournament, basically. And that was kind of the consensus around. And, you know, you had everybody in there had something to prove. And that's to me what that was all about. And what we forget about that group. And I remember watching an, an old clip or an old game on classic games from that series with the Warriors. The bench unit had guys that could hoop. Yeah. You know, they had, you know, Beno Udri and they had Costa Kufos and guys that fit exactly what you were doing. And you're looking out there and you're mixing and matching these eight, nine guys. And, you know, Courtney Lee's out there and all of a sudden you're going like, wow, they, they we were good. We were really good. Um, I know a lot of people knocked the Jeff Green trade, but people forget them. The day they got Jeff Green, the next 10 games, they won nine of them. And it just was figuring that stuff out. But when you go to the core four and the reason guys were willing to come play here, the reason guys would sign um, was they wanted to be around those guys. They liked those tough, that tough mm-hmm. guy mentality. They liked playing for Lionel. They liked playing for, for Dave and I hope you know we all know what's happening with Dave and we all wish him our best as well but you you break them down Tony Allen couldn't get the contract he wanted in Boston so Chris Wallace who loved him in Boston said I'll give you a contract to come here prove it but then he had to prove his worth to Lionel Hollins Mm -hmm. Lionel wasn't playing him a ton at first he goes out locks down Kevin Durant in a game in Oklahoma City he does an interview with Rob Fisher and all of a sudden all heart Rick grind is born Mike Conley gets in into the NBA draft. We don't even think he's going to come our way. We think Atlanta is going to take him with the third pick because they're in dire need of a point guard. Atlanta decides on Al Horford. And that's, we had been preparing as an organization to have Al Horford and Pal Gasol as the front court duo for years to come. Well, that changed very quickly. Mike comes in, he's hurt the first 45 games, can't even play. He looks like he's about 160 pounds. His shot is inconsistent. Um, you know, Chris Vernon used to give him the business. Say, I just don't think the guy is a viable NBA starting point guard. We used to have the argument when I was a guest, on, a weekly guest on his show. And he would eat those words later because he, he realized. And, and that's a testament to Mike mm-hmm. having something to prove and being willing not to listen to the pundits and say, hey, I, I belong here. And then you have, you know, Zach Randolph, who when he's traded for, he says, I just want when people to Google my name. The story's not to be of negativity, but to be positive. I need a city to love me. And here was Memphis saying, we don't care what happened in Portland. That was a bad situation. We don't care about your relationships in New York. Bad situation. The Clippers got Blake Griffin. They don't need you. And you flip basically Darko Milicic for Zach Randolph. That's a hell of a deal. (laughs) That's a hell of a deal right there. Because you got Quentin Richardson for Darko Milicic and then Quentin Richardson for Zach Randolph. That's a hell of a, a series of trades, which got you a guy that not a lot of people were willing to, to roll the dice on that contract. And he became the first ever all-star and the, the guy whose jersey is going to hang in our rafters. And I remember there's a Nashville reporter who, when 
people were saying that I was like, Oh, I wouldn't retire Zach Randolph's Jersey. He has, I'm like, dude, you know, then what's your premise for a Jersey retirement? Right. People were asking, he was like, well, they've got to be this. I'm like, the guy has almost 20,000 points and over 10,000 rebounds. Those are hall of fame numbers. Well, he only made a couple of all-star games. And I'm like, okay, you know, Jersey retirement for a team to me is about what you meant to that organization in that city. And Zach meant the world to it, especially coming in here, paying MLG and W bills, but then giving you the ultimate gift of that first playoff win and first playoff series win in that upset of San Antonio. And I remember Michael Heisley distinctly saying three years before, give me three years to build this and we'll bring something you guys will be proud of. And that's what it became. And then you had Mark, who we all remembered as this kid at Lausanne that was a little overweight, a little lazy, didn't seem to really love to play basketball. So we went overseas and in his press conference, I went, that's Mark now. And that was before you had Zach or Tony. Yeah. And Mark came in and I was like, whoa different look and didn't, you know, flourish right away. And they had him and Darko and they were trying to figure out what they had in Mark. And then Lionel comes in and says, Mark's my guy. Mark's my guy. Mike's my guy. These are the guy I'm building around. And that's the other part of the core four that I think that people don't give enough credit to is Lionel Hollins. If he doesn't say, I like Kyle Lowry. I like Mike Conley better. I like having two bigs, but Mark Gasol is my guy. And, you know, Kyle went on to unbelievable career probably going to end up in the hall of fame with all the all-star appearances and things he's done in his career being a world champion but you had to pick one and and Lionel's stuck to his guys and that built what we had and you think about Mark and uh, the other story that gets told sometimes if maybe not enough is they were talking about trading Mike Conley for Ramon Sessions who was in Milwaukee and Mark went into Chris Wallace's office and said this isn't the guy to trade if there's guys in our locker room that can be traded there are some but this is not the guy. This is a guy you win with. And thankfully, they never made that deal. And we saw what we saw. They're different people on and off the court. But their brotherhood was there. They were like brothers. There were times when they would bark at each other out of frustration. Um, but there were the, the great moments that we had. And did it result in an NBA championship? No. It did result in a trip to the Western Conference Finals where you ran into a buzzsaw. But then injuries kind of got the better of you. The year Mark Gasol gets hurt and is out for the year and rolling around on the scooter, and the year everything goes haywire, the Grizzlies were the number one seed in the West when that all happened. They had won 37 out of 50 games. They were just rolling people. And we were like, this is, you know, we're on the road every night just living it up. And it was the first (laughs) taste we had of national exposure, being out in cities and hearing people come up and we'd have our sweatshirts or our hats on. And people would be like, Dude, you guys are so much fun to watch because it's not this, you know, try to be too fancy school. This is blue collar, hardcore basketball, and we love it. And so that core four brought a sense of legitimacy to the to the organization, to the city being an NBA city, because a lot of times and I'm sure you heard this. They're not going to be there very long. They're going to move. They're not long for Memphis. It won't support it. And then you get into that first playoff game, game three, after winning one in San Antonio. And Greg Popovich, I remember saying, dude, that was ridiculous what we just went into. Like that's that atmosphere is like nothing I've been a part of. And that was pretty impressive.
Yeah. And, and that's what makes Memphis uh, special, the franchise in, yeah. in general. But really those core four guys, uh, you know, just to sum it up, is pretty much they – they crawled so now Ja and the new, you know, Grizz next gen, they can actually walk and if not run right. with this. And and really they laid the, the the foundation and and really it was it was I know you talked a lot about the franchise and the team, but it made like the city a totally different place. Like yeah, like like it created jobs. And, and I know some people, you know, laughed at me because I, I was actually asked this question. Uh, this past week. And I was like, it created jobs. It created, you know, livelihoods. They went from the pyramid to now the big FedEx forum. And it just made everything just legitimate. And, you know, like you said, and now, you know, we talk about Bill Street and what it is and that it's iconic, but right. now it's, it's really one in one with the Grizzlies. And it's so special what they did to the city. And it's weird that four guys that not just them, but others, you know, but mainly the core four is really the reason that Memphis is the way it is, yeah. the franchise and the city, which is so special. But uh, it but is, and, you know, to add on that real quick, you know, we're we're not so pound our chest. Hey, we built this blind that we don't realize the love affair the city has with the Tigers. Yeah, it, it that's that's built this, too. And yes. having that facility because the team came for the Tigers to play in help that program but the tigers have helped themselves by over the years of you know minus a few years like sometimes happens to nba teams they've been really good and if you talk to anybody that works downtown or anybody that now lives downtown and all this development this does not happen if the nba does not come to memphis and and then find some success in memphis and there are people that say when the tigers or grizzlies win downtown things boom people right. stay out people go eat people stay out later and the dollar flows through the downtown area. Now it's obviously a little different now with people still feeling the effects of the pandemic, but mm -hmm. um, sports matter. Sports matter to a, an infrastructure of a city and an economy of a city. And to have two incredibly well-loved basketball teams in college and in pro um, have the hearts of this city, because those are our teams. I mean, yeah. people love Tiger football, absolutely. And people that are, there are diehard Redbirds fans. But when you talk about the sports fandom in the city, it starts with the Memphis Tigers and then is followed very closely by the Memphis Grizzlies. And that's something we've understood and accepted. And that's totally fine by us because our goal is we want to see the Tigers in the final four one year and right. the Grizzlies in the NBA finals and just say, hey, look at how good the basketball is in the Bluff City. And, and if you want to be a part of it, these are fun teams to watch. Yeah, the uh, we're, we're a basketball town, like you said. And so, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because we we are basketball. And that's really it yep. was first, you know, the Tigers. And still, I don't, I don't think your first love is ever going to go away with the with the Tigers nope. basketball. Uh, but Eric, thank you. Uh, this was uh, story time with Eric because I'm just sitting here just like listening like a like a kid almost. I know I'm, I'm an older guy now, but. <laughs> uh, I've had a, I've had a blast and I appreciate you really just kind of coming on here and just kind of helping us and talking us through a lot of what it is, because I think, you know, Taylor Jenkins doesn't get the credit he deserves. And, um, and I'm glad that you feel that way, but also, you know, the other rest of the people around the city will start to learn that, Hey, he is one of the best you know, in this league, but he also, he's the best for this team in my opinion. So, so I'm glad you I, were able to do that. Yeah. I, I have a, a lot of respect for Taylor and I know that, that some people would think that there's a bigger name out there that could do better and I, I think that's where you start really running the risk of, of doing some different things Daniel it's been a lot of fun anytime to talk about this stuff's good for me I gotta give Rob Fisher credit we like to call it Hoop City instead of Memphis and um, 
it's you know just between the youth basketball and, and everything else it's such an honor to be a part of it and, and we talk about it every day how lucky we are and, and it's it's not just because we get paid to do something we love but we get paid to do something we love in a city that loves the game too and that makes it a lot easier for us so i appreciate you having me on anytime you want to have me back just let me know absolutely thank you so much eric